1: With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech,
0: all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Anything that I say during this podcast is absolutely my own personal opinion. It is for personal use and does not represent the views of the federal government, the Department of Defense, or the United States Air Force. This is Alexis Gerst, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast.
1: According to Alexis Gerst, author of Leading Remote Teams, Embrace the Future of Remote Work Culture, we are cruising through uncharted waters, What started as a brief two-week quarantine has turned into a years-long pandemic that has changed how we work and communicate forever. She goes on to say that remote work has become a crucial part of every business that wants to survive in this ever-changing reality, and it's up to leaders to make working from home work for everyone involved. Those who manage to adapt will thrive, those who struggle will be left behind. When it comes to leading virtual teams, working remotely, and making sure that your team does not lose its identity, you as a leader have to be the first to adapt, inspire, and motivate. While many feel that the edge of the pandemic is receding and vaccines are ensuring a return to something that feels more like normalcy, the question remains, is remote work here to stay? And just as importantly, are you prepared? Alexis Gerst is a detail-oriented leader with a passion for remote work culture. As an Acquisition Program Manager, Alexis is experienced leading technical teams toward the procurement and sustainment of critical weapons systems. Alexis earned her Master's of Business Administration with a concentration in Engineering Management from Southern New Hampshire University. She is a proactive problem solver, skilled at maximizing productivity through team collaboration, superior communication, and confident decision-making. And leading remote teams embrace the future of remote work culture, Alexis champions the future potential of remote work, explores the advantages of a workplace paradigm shift, and delivers tactical tips for remote leaders to enable team success. It was mono. Mononucleosis, which actually made my wife stay at home and work from our little living room. It was the late 1990s, and she had a computer and our phone set up, and she did that for two weeks until she felt well enough to go into the office. Fast forward to 2003, and her business decided that all of the human resources people would work remotely. They were the first of their kind. 18 years ago, she left the office, got rid of her commute, and started working from our home. That was before Wi-Fi, before high-speed internet. And for the next 18 years, that's what she did. During that time, we had two kids, countless deliveries, all sorts of home catastrophes, and although she was working full-time, she was still there. Now, things have changed. Back in 2020 with the COVID pandemic, the rest of the world caught up with my wife's company And we've really moved to a remote working world. As the pandemic lets up, however, it begs the question, will we stay remote forever? In 2021, will most of us see ourselves returning to the in-person workplace? Or is this remote working environment here for good? And if it is, what skills will set you apart in this new virtual world? Alexis Gerst is an acquisition program manager and has a passion for championing remote work culture. Her book, Leading Remote Teams, Embrace the Future of Remote Work Culture, dropped April 13th. Alexis, welcome to Earn and Invest. I want to jump in with a question. In mid-2020, you actually changed positions and moved into a role as a program manager. Talk about transitioning into a leadership position during a remote work environment.
0: Yes, I did get the joy of transitioning into a new organization completely virtually in the middle of the pandemic. So that was kind of a learning curve and really opened up my eyes to the challenges of working on a team when you haven't met the people in person. When we first started the telework posture as the pandemic kicked off and my organization went home, that team that I was leading I had already been working with them for a year and a half before I moved. So I was already very comfortable with the people and the nuances. And, you know, if somebody uses sarcasm or doesn't use sarcasm and just the different ways that people communicated, we were already very comfortable working together as a team. So just the transition to working from our laptops and emailing, we already understand each other's nuances. So that wasn't. So challenging as stepping into and trying to develop relationships with people through a computer. When I transitioned, it was a little bit interesting because my supervisor had to reach out and call me and contact me and say, "Hey, you know we're bringing you on. This is what it's going to look like in the transition." I only actually went into the office about one or two times while I was transitioning, and that was basically to meet my supervisor and for him to say, "Here you go. He's your computer." get set up with IT and then take it home and connect and start working from there. That was definitely a learning curve. And most of the people on my team that I work with now, i still haven't met in person. So almost a year later, that's kind of crazy. But as you, Start to work with people, you start to learn their nuances and start to become friends with them. One idea in the book I talk about is over communicating and starting to get to know new team members. And that was kind of true for me as well, starting a new position. Everything was new. I wasn't necessarily sure who to contact for different things or what people's mannerisms looked like or who to go to for what questions because in my job, there's a lot of different subject matter experts depending on what you're looking for that was an interesting piece to learn and who to contact and those types of things. But then also to develop those relationships, I think was interesting. And as we started to talk more on the phone and do our regular meetings, we kind of injected some personality and some casual conversations into those meetings, which I really think helped to develop the relationships along the way.
1: You mentioned this idea of developing relationships when you've never met someone in person I go back to my wife's experience during the introduction. She's been doing this since 2003. Virtual or remote working is nothing new. Like, would we be even having this conversation if not for the pandemic?
0: I'm not sure if we would be having this conversation if it wasn't for the pandemic. I think a lot of companies and organizations were starting to gradually integrate remote work but for a lot of organizations it was just like a maybe one off once a week or part time they would be able to just take their laptop home and answer some emails if they needed to but it wasn't really like a full time remote gig and i think the pandemic forced it upon us rather quickly and people that weren't prepared for it weren't ready for it would have preferred to work face to face with people in an office they had to learn it and I think when you're forced into something it's a little bit more of a shock and it brings it more to the forefront of conversations. People weren't necessarily volunteering to telework and since they were kind of, you know, forced into it or shoved into it as you will, they weren't ready. And I think that's really where the conversation comes from is we weren't ready for this and a lot of people experienced many challenges along the way and a lot of those challenges relate to the emotions around the workplace and the human connection that's involved. I think that was one challenge that a lot of people were not prepared for.
1: Do you think we're any more prepared now? I mean, what probably will happen, hopefully, is the pandemic will die down, which means that the ability to go work in person again will return. Has the world changed forever? Or could this remote work, will this not survive the change in our work culture?
0: I think this will definitely see an increase in remote work going forward. A lot of organizational leaders that I've seen, a lot of their feedback has been that they were pleasantly surprised in how much everybody increased in productivity as they they shifted to remote work. And I think one of the challenges was that some of the generational differences, like some of the older generation maybe wasn't as natural in using their virtual tools, using things like Zoom or or Microsoft Teams for their meetings and communicating through a virtual platform that way. Whereas like the younger generation is very comfortable and natural and native in the digital environment. So I think we saw a lot of those differences in the pandemic and people's comfort levels in adopting to the remote work situation. I've heard a lot of companies talking about a hybrid model and how do we how do we go back to work in a way that we can incorporate all the benefits that we've gained for, from the flexibility of remote work, but still learn to connect and collaborate in person because there is value in gathering together in person, being able to see people face to face. And I think after working from home for every year, a lot of people are starting to be really eager to meet people and talk to them face-to-face and just be able to have those casual conversations
1: again. Yeah, I want to talk about both the benefits and the disadvantages. Let's talk about some of those benefits that might keep at least partial remote work alive. What do you think are the major benefits of doing it this way of remote workplace?
0: I think Some of the major benefits are really the flexibility that it offers. So, Even in a part-time model, you still get a lot of the benefits of reduced commute time, improved productivity of being able to, you know, work from home and really get into that flow state or that true productive time that you need, but also still be able to go back into the office and collaborate as needed. Um, A lot of people are seeing improved work-life balance and able to find time to spend with their family or exercise if they need to, because they've cut out that commute time. They've cut out the time that they need to Prep themselves for the office. You know, you gotta for ladies, you gotta do your hair and makeup, and men gotta get dressed and really get ready. So that that time has all been cut out of the day. And we've seen a lot of ability to really look at the other areas, areas of your life that you want to balance out. I think those are some of the great benefits. Also, there's a lot of costs that are reduced when you don't have to work in the office. So if you're going in only one or two days a week versus every day. It's a lot less on your business wardrobe or your work wardrobe that you need as far as clothing. The cost of the commute is cut out. You're going to spend a lot less money on gas, maybe not drive nearly as many miles per year. A lot of those benefits employers and employees are starting to recognize as, hey, I can get some time back in my life. Um, I can slow down my pace a little bit and start to breathe and not be so stressed out all the time.
1: What about disadvantages? I know you mentioned work-life balance. One of the downsides of working remotely, we found, is that it's really hard to get away from work because it's literally just right down the hall in the office that it's much easier to work during off hours or to answer that email at 10 o'clock at night as opposed to relaxing like we used to.
0: Yeah. So with the benefits do come those disadvantages. And I think this is very very individual as far as how you approach your schedule and your day when it comes to remote work. So setting boundaries and setting expectations. And so with my team, I let them know, you know, outside of business hours, don't contact me unless it's an emergency. If it's something truly urgent uh, that the mission needs, I'll definitely respond. You can text me and I can get on, but those emergencies are very, very few and far between. So for the most part, I don't respond to emails outside of business hours most things can wait until the next work day to be able to respond. I think it helps to have a space in your home that's designated as like your workspace. So maybe it's just a corner that you have a little desk set up in. Some people are fortunate enough to have an office where they can go into, and that's kind of their work area. When you're off duty or off work to just be able to shut your computer, shut your laptop, shut the door if you have one and just leave that space completely One thing some people do is they change clothes, so they might put on some work clothes or maybe have a certain type of outfit that kind of helps them delineate between work and home life. I think it's been very challenging on a lot of people's mental health as far as setting those boundaries go, and you have to be really intentional about it, but when you are able to set up those boundaries and set those expectations and then learn to be okay with just letting go for the day and If you still have some things on your to do list, but they don't have to be done today, being okay with leaving them for tomorrow, I think, is huge in helping overcome some of those challenges and separating work from home and maintaining that balance.
1: As someone who entered a leadership position, building trust among your colleagues and employees is very difficult at baseline, right? Even walking into a new job that isn't virtual. We face those challenges often. Tell me how it's different in a virtual world. How do you build that trust and build your sort of leadership profile?
0: Trust really comes down to two elements. And I talk about these two elements a little bit in the book. One is likability. So, can people, do people like you? Are you easy to get along with? That's kind of what likability boils down to. And then reliability. So, Are you going to do what you say you're going to do? Can your team count on you? Can you count on your team? I think building trust is really, and even before the pandemic and in the office, it really boiled down to this as well as do you follow through on your commitments? It builds up over time. And that's something that you need to practice as you go along is if your team asks you to do something, or if you say that you're going to, you know, fight for them and, and run something up your, your leadership to your leadership, to your managers or their boss on their behalf? Are you actually going to do that? And are you going to get the outcome that you promised? Or if not, be able to at least articulate why it didn't work out. I think that goes a long way towards building trust on your team.
1: Another piece of trust is transparency. And again, I feel like when we're all in the same place, it's very easy for employees to see what their boss is doing, to see them working busily at their desk, how can you be transparent as a leader in the virtual space?
0: Transparency is really about communicating the intent behind your actions, I think. So sometimes leadership in an organization makes decisions and the employees will just see the aftermath or the outcome of those decisions. You know, If there's a change that needs to be implemented, they just see that, okay, we need to do XYZ now. Or we need to change the way that we've been doing things, but they don't see the reason why behind those changes. So for me, transparency is really about communicating the why. If there's some tasks that aren't so fun to do, but somebody needs to do them rather than just saying, oh, well, you're the one that got the short end of the stick. I need you to do this. Explain why it's important for that to be done and why they have that role in the organization. I think it's really key to building that transparency. One thing that one of the senior leaders in my organization did that really garnered a lot of respect for me and from a lot of other members in the organization was he held live virtual events. We used to do what were called like all calls where the leader would get together with everybody in a huge room in like a theater or some other type of building. Obviously with COVID, we can't do that anymore. So, he would do the live events where it was kind of one sided, but we could also ask questions. And I had more exposure to him than I had to any other senior leader in my organization before the pandemic, even. So, that was helpful to really get his insight. And he shared, you know, some of the big things that are going on in the organization, some of the big movements that are happening. But he also shared the why, why we're doing this and why it's important for us to make these changes. And I think that was really, really key to the transparency in the organization. And when you can bring that transparency to your team and help everybody understand the motivations behind the actions It can help build up your, your trust and also your respect.
1: We're talking about the why and having people understand the reasons behind your actions. Talk about building team purpose and connection in a virtual world. I mean, is the sense of togetherness different? Is the sense of shared purpose different? more difficult to create when you're not face-to-face?
0: I think it can be difficult to create face-to-face, but if you're intentional about it as a leader, whether you're in the office or not in the office, if you're intentional about creating that purpose and that connection as a team, that can really drive some of the commitment behind the team accomplishing their goals and their mission. So as cheesy as it sounds, something like having a shared team mission statement and vision statement, can really help boil down to if it's well done, it can help boil you down to what your actual team's goal is to accomplish and what you're working towards. And I think that can help when people are have different workloads and you have different members that could be doing the same thing. It can help people be willing to take on other tasks that they wouldn't normally be doing just for the accomplishment of that shared goal and that shared team purpose.
1: When I asked my wife what types of things were difficult for her since she's been in this virtual world for so long, one of the things she brought up was hiring and firing, that it's just a fundamentally different process when you're not doing it in person. Is that something that's more difficult in the virtual world? I
0: definitely think hiring and firing will be very difficult virtually, especially because it's hard to be personable and relate to somebody when you're not sitting in front of them face to face and make sure that intentions are understood. I haven't personally had a lot of experience with hiring and firing other than uh, a couple of people around me that have gotten new jobs and being like new hires coming out of an organization. And I know one of the big challenges, especially with hiring and bringing new individuals into an organization that haven't previously worked there before is the culture. And that's one thing that a lot of the leaders in my organization are concerned about is how do we take somebody that, so we're in a military organization, how do we take somebody that has no experience with the military and our culture and some of the things that are important to us and how we operate, how do we take them and assimilate them into that and help them understand what it means to be part of a service organization? I think that's a a big concern that we're working with. And part of that's going to come through with the regular team interactions. So then communicating to the people who are already on the team that it's important to instill these values in the new team members as well.
1: We've used words like purpose and transparency. How fundamentally is this different from leadership in any situation? I mean, is it really a big deal to be virtual as opposed to in person? Are are the skill sets pretty much the same?
0: I think overall they're pretty much the same. I think it becomes more challenging in a virtual environment. So an intentional leader in an in-person, in-office organization or situation is going to be employing a lot of these things. And if they're good at it, they'll be a good leader. And if they're good at it, it'll also be easier for them to transition remote and still be able to connect to people. However, I think a lot of these tips in the book especially are more important when you work virtually, because since you don't see each other regularly, you have to be intentional about reaching out. You have to be intentional about setting the purpose and the vision. They don't just come naturally because it's easy for people to just hide at home in their office and not try to be intentional and and initiate these communications and the actions that it takes to, to lead well in a remote environment.
1: One of the things I always used to complain about from leadership is the number of meetings that we had in person, the number of hours that were wasted when we could be doing something else. Talk about the importance of meetings in a virtual world. What types of meetings should you as a leader be having?
0: So meetings are something that are kind of a double-edged sword, right? On one hand, they're a really good tool to collaborate, especially when you have things like screen sharing or if you can use video to see each other face to face. Those can be really useful to get the the people that need to be working together on the same page at the same time talking with each other, and it can save a lot of time. That way you can all share your ideas at once and get them down and collaborate on whatever it is that you're working on. So in that case, it can save a lot of time and it can be a useful collaboration tool. On the other hand, meetings get abused. I think everybody would probably agree on that. Oh, let's just set up a meeting and and talk about that. Well, depending on what level you are in your organization, you might have meetings both down and upward that you have to go to. And some of the ones either way might not actually require your presence. Some of the abuse of meetings can come from the fear of somebody getting left out or getting their feelings hurt, or maybe somebody should have been included and you didn't include them on the invite. I see that more so as kind of the abuse of meetings and, oh, well, we need to blast this out to everybody to make sure I didn't forget anybody. But on the same side, especially if that's coming from your boss down to you as a subordinate and you see your name on the email, you're gonna think, oh, well, my boss sent this to me. I have to be in that meeting. When maybe they just wanted to make sure they didn't forget anybody and they might be leaving it up to you to determine if you actually need to be there or not.
1: One of the things I saw you mention in the book is this idea that one type of meeting was very important called a weekly stand-up meeting. What what exactly is that and how does it play a role in the virtual world?
0: Yes. So the weekly stand-up is one of my favorite tips to give people because it really changed the way I look at my productivity and the way I look at my team's productivity. So it was actually a tool that I hadn't used until I moved to the new organization that I joined mid-pandemic and the team lead there was using these stand-up meetings. And at first I was like, oh no, I don't want to do this on a Monday morning. I'm not ready for that. But over time, I actually really started to like it because it helped everybody get on the same page. It helped you from a productivity standpoint. Everybody gets together on a Monday morning and they shake off the weekend dust or the weekend trance. And you know, over the weekend, sometimes you forget about what you're working on or what's important. And then you just open your email and then kind of fall into your inbox on a Monday morning. Whereas this kind of helps you shake off all the loose ends and focus on, okay, what are the important tasks that are due this week? What are the important efforts that I need to work on? Or maybe the big meetings that are really important for the week. And it can also, if you have kind of like a dashboard laid out, one thing that my team does is we'll have like all the really big meetings for the week on one side and we'll have our priorities and then like the different efforts that we're working on and who's responsible for what. So it's a good way to kind of bring awareness to the whole team of what's happening throughout throughout the team and throughout the organization so they can know what's going on. Maybe they don't need to be in that meeting and somebody else can cover it for them. So that can help kind of reduce some of the excess meetings and the excess time wasted and too many people attending things that aren't necessary. But it also helps to even out the workload. So with that, some people might be a little bit overstressed one week and they might have to... Ask somebody else to take something on or as a team lead, you can see pretty easily who is a little bit overworked or overwhelmed for that week and who isn't. So if somebody else doesn't have something going on, then it's easy for you to say, hey, you know, Susie, can you take this task on so that Joe is not so overwhelmed this week or can focus on the other thing? So that's a good way to kind of embrace the team mentality and be able to even out the workload and think about it as a whole team workload rather than the individual. Um, And another aspect with the weekly standup is it helps you think about your productivity on a weekly basis rather than an hourly or daily basis. And I think that's really important for being okay with maintaining that work-life balance. So something that I talked about with another individual was like, If you have something with your kid happening one afternoon and you need to take some time off, do you really need to go back and put in a couple hours later that night to make up for that time? Or can you get that done a different day, whatever project you were working on? I like to look at, you know, for the week, what are my productive goals? What are my outputs and my deliverables that I need to get done? Or for my team, what are the outputs and deliverables that they need to get done? And then be a little bit more forgiving on the day-to-day, as long as we're meeting what we need to meet and our goals and our objectives by the deadlines that they need to be done by.
1: The stand-up meeting is a fairly short meeting that's almost like a status meeting where each member stands up and talks about what they're doing that week, what they need to get accomplished, and if they need some type of help, what help they need.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just a really quick, less than 30 minutes, depending on the size of your team, maybe less than 15 minutes even it's only a couple people. And yeah, so you'll look at kind of like that dashboard level of what are the meetings? What are the priorities? What are the tasks that need to happen? And then have each member say what they're working on for the week and what their priorities are. And that really helps bring it down to the individual level of what are they doing to contribute to the team that week.
1: Let's take a short break. Alexis Gerst's new book is Leading Remote Teams Embrace the Future of Remote Work Culture. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code EARN50 at Factormeals.com slash EARN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then they bring them to you. RCrowd's accredited investors have already invested in over $1 billion in fast-growing tech companies and have benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, RCrowd is investing in medical technology, breakthroughs in ag tech and food production, solutions in the multi-billion-dollar robotic industry, and so much more. Now, accredited investors can join the fastest-growing venture capital community at ourcrowd.com EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. Your our crowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. Let me reintroduce you. Alexis Gerst believes that remote work has become a crucial part of every business that wants to survive in the ever-changing post-pandemic reality, and it's up to its leaders to make working from home work for everyone involved. One of the challenges that I think meetings fulfill is this idea of needing to communicate between team members. When you're in the same physical space, I feel like communication is much easier. Virtually, what are the risks of over-communicating versus under-communicating? And how do you decide what that right balance is? For
0: over-communicating, I think virtually you're better to err on the side of over-communicating. Somebody will probably tell you when they're getting sick of you, or maybe they will stop answering your phone calls, who knows. But (laughs) usually you would rather over-communicate than assume or under-communicate that something's gonna happen or that somebody knows what's going on. I think we know the moniker for assume, if you spell that out. (laughs) In a virtual environment, if you assume something, you are more than likely wrong because you don't have those face to face hey are you doing this or are you doing that or the other thing that's kind of difficult in the virtual environment is if you say hey i need somebody to work on this task and it isn't assigned to somebody specific to take responsibility for it you can't see that nobody's actually working on it you can just assume that people you know in their home office are working on on whatever needs to be done and nobody's actually doing it but it's really hard to see when you're not physically located together that nobody's actually working on it it's really easy for things to fall through the cracks like that so it's really important to prioritize what the most important activities are because I think we could all fill up our day with plenty of activities that don't necessarily add value right we could go to a lot of meetings but are you necessarily needed in those meetings? We can answer a lot of emails or talk on the phone for a long time, take a lot of phone calls, but do those things really matter in the overall goal for your organization? And I think that prioritization really goes back to what am I actually getting paid to do? What are, what does my organization need me for? So whether that's you know, leading your team and making sure everybody's aligned, then those are the things that you should spend your time doing and checking to make sure everybody's aligned, checking to make sure that your team has the resources that they need to complete their tasks. If you need to complete tasks and, you know, maybe there's some documents that you need to get done or some things that you need to get set up, that should, those should be the activities that you spend your time doing. So thinking about really what, what the value is that you bring to your organization and your role, I think is really important to helping you identify what those priorities actually are.
1: Now, as a leader, do you run into the problem of your people who work with you having issues with multitasking and attention? Because I know, for instance, during these virtual meetings, it only takes me a moment before my eye is wandering from the camera and I'm returning emails and doing other things. Do you think multitasking causes more of a problem in a virtual world than maybe it did when we were in person.
0: Multitasking can definitely be a challenge, especially with meetings being virtually. If you're not on a camera, it's really easy for you to get distracted. Maybe the meeting isn't something that like you're actively discussing and you're just kind of doing it for situational awareness to know what's going on. It's really easy to pull out your phone, start scrolling through Facebook or whatever other social media. A really common one is you'll have maybe the meeting up on one screen and on the other screen, your emails are still open. And you, as you see emails come in, you're like, oh, I can just respond to this one quick. And before you know it, your attention is completely away from what was being discussed in the meeting. And gets really embarrassing if somebody calls on you then to, to ask what your input is. And then you're like, oh, sorry, I was answering an email. What was being asked? That makes it really obvious that you weren't paying attention. So those redirects can take a lot of extra time out of our day. And especially when you're working on something that requires a true deep flow state, such as a project that you may be doing. If you leave your email open while you're doing that and your email pops up, you're likely to completely get distracted from what you were doing. Go to the email and say, oh, this is important. I could respond to this. Um, I need to respond to this really quick. Your attention goes away from what you were doing, goes to the email, and it takes you a little while to focus on the email and get that done. And then you're like, okay, what was I doing again? And then you go back to what you were trying to do. Oh yeah, I was trying to work on this document. And it actually takes 20, 21 to 25 minutes for your brain to get back up to speed fully on what you were doing. So that can take a lot of time out of your day just that refocusing and shifting back and forth and trying to figure out what exactly you were doing again. And you have to spend that time to get reset and in the right frame of mind that can really be a strain on your time. So if you can like shut down your email and kind of, I use time blocking as a trick to just really focus on something and knock out some priorities really quickly. It's way easier to actually get things done to completion rather than splitting your attention between multiple things and shifting back and forth. And I've seen that when I use that, it's an active thing. It's kind of like fitness. You need to practice it over and over. It's not just automatic. But when I do use time blocking actively, I can get way more done in way less time than most people would typically get done. Two
1: thoughts from that. One is That when we're talking about multitasking, as much as I hate in person meetings and I do not enjoy them myself, the truth is being at the same physical space as everyone else does help center you in a sense. I mean, yes, you can be peering at your phone, looking at your email, but everyone has those visual cues around you. Whereas virtually, there is not as much visual cue. So you can be doing three other things at the same time and other people don't notice. The other interesting idea is the time blocking. I wonder if you run into problems with that virtually because people feel like if they can't reach you immediately, you must be gone. Do you ever run into that issue where people start getting anxious if you don't respond to their emails right away because you're in the midst of blocking your time so you can get something done, uh, but they start getting antsy because we're used to this texting back and forth and people responding to emails so quickly?
0: Yes, that can be a challenge. However, it is one that is fairly easily overcome depending on the culture of your organization. So a lot of organizations have started, you know, the expectation of living in a virtual world is that you're always connected and you're always on and you can respond immediately. And that can drive kind of a lot of anxiety for people and the expectation that they have to have their email open and they have to respond right away. I would ask them to evaluate where that comes from. And why you feel like you need to respond right away. So is your is your boss telling you, I want an immediate response from this? Then maybe that's important if that's really important to them. But it would be worth having a conversation with your boss and saying, do you really need me to, to respond within five minutes? Or could I respond within an hour or two hours? And that would that basically have the same effect? Because I mean, if you're in a meeting for an hour, you're probably in most worlds like if you if you are truly paying attention to the meeting you might not be able to respond to that email for an hour so does it make a difference if you're in a meeting with yourself trying to get into that flow state and be productive or if you're in a meeting with other people i think it's kind of the same thing so establishing those expectations of yes i will respond but it might be an hour or two hours later i think that's a plenty reasonable amount of time even if you can respond within a few hours You're usually going to be meeting the intent and keeping the conversation going if it's in an email versus I need to respond immediately and fragment my time and my attention. The other thing with time blocking and being able to shut down your email, if you talk to your boss about it, I think they'll probably be on board. And after a couple of weeks of you doing that, seeing how much more productive you are and how much more you can deliver in a short amount of time, I think that'll buy them over pretty quickly on being able to except a delay in your responses.
1: Yeah, I imagine, especially if you have an open calendar that other people can refer to that sees you have blocked off time there, that can also ease some of their fear and anxiety. When we're having this conversation, I think a lot about my wife's experience. And the truth of the matter is, I think the culture of her company really made remote working successful. I'm talking to you and you are part of that military culture, which I think is very prescriptive and organized, which also probably makes remote working very successful. Tell me, are there certain types of organizations or certain types of employees that probably don't do well with a virtual workspace?
0: So the ones that do well are probably the ones that are very self-motivated and driven. The ones that probably don't do so well are the ones that need that constant attention. So uh, maybe some younger individuals or less experienced ones or some people that just need structure and need somebody telling them what they're supposed to be doing or what they're supposed to be working on. I kind of liken this to the example of when I was a brand new airman. There was a lot of hand-holding that went on and your your supervisor or your, your team lead was giving you something to do every hour of every day. And a lot of the times they would be monitoring you as you went and did it. So that would not lend itself very good to a virtual environment because it is a very self-motivated environment. You have to be accountable to your, your own outputs and your own productivity. Whereas, you know, your supervisor can assign you a task, but they can't necessarily watch you and hold your hand as you go through it and do it yourself. So there has to be a level of competency and the know-how on how how to execute the actual tasks that are part of your job. Granted, you can use some virtual tools to to do training and teach people how to do some of those things, but they also have to have a certain level of self-motivation to be able to actually follow through and do those things on their own.
1: You were talking about hand-holding, and I think about some of the older generations who have been working in person for decades. This has been probably a major transition for them. Let's talk about young people. Do you think young people need to be taught how to work virtually, or do you think kids coming out of college today will kind of just know because of their generation and what they've grown up with?
0: I think generally, generationally, there is a huge difference on the comfort level with technology. So the kids coming out of college today have grown up with smartphones, have grown up with computers, video chat's been around for quite a while now, and they're used to communicating through social media, through messenger and email as some primary means of communication. And that's really how they connect with a lot of their friends is they still get together in person, but... They, they have a lot of their conversations through digital mediums. So I don't necessarily think that they will need to be taught how to use the tools. Most of that's fairly self-intuitive. As for the younger generation, they can figure out technology pretty quickly, but they might still need, like, I think expectation setting and this is what we need out of you is going to be really important for bringing on the, the fresh college graduates onto your teams.
1: What do you see the future of virtual work looking like? I assume at some point we'll get past some of this pandemic issue. Hopefully we'll be able to go out and spend time with each other again. What do you think work's going to look like over the next five, 10 years?
0: I definitely see the hybrid model taking precedence in remote work going forward. Um, However, I think a lot of that is going to be flexible, dependent on the worker's situation. I think a lot of companies are going to be willing to adapt and say, you know, if you need to go fully remote for a while, you can. If we need to, you know, maybe you want to travel and you want to live somewhere else, you might be able to do that for a while. And then your company may be able to say, hey, if we really need you in person for something, for an event or a training or something else like that, maybe they could just pay your travel for that one or two times a year that it's actually required for you to be on site. So I think over the next five years, we're going to see a lot more remote work opportunity. I think there's a lot of talent acquisition and talent retention opportunity when it comes to remote work. So companies aren't going to be limited by the people who they can recruit in their immediate area with the skill set that they need. They'll be able to look across the country to see where are these other people that maybe they don't want to move here full-time, but maybe they'd be willing to travel here once in a while and then do the majority of their work remote. I think we'll see a lot of that going forward. And I think we'll also see a lot of the retention side of it. So being in the military, I'm very aware of the challenges that military families and military spouses specifically face. So military spouses have had a really hard time maintaining any semblance of a professional career because you have to move every two to four years, and you have to find a completely new position at a completely new company, unless you're lucky enough to maybe have some government organizations that you can stay with, or a company that's has a lot of different locations. But as a retention tool, if somebody has to move for that reason, you could still keep them on in a remote capacity, and they could still contribute that way, versus having to say, okay, well, you can't come into our office anymore. So see you. good luck with your life. They'll be able to keep those people on because there's a lot of costs that go into recruiting a new person and training them up to the level of experience that you need. Whereas if somebody can keep contributing with the experience that they have, even just from a different location, I think that'll be a huge benefit to companies integrating remote work going forward.
1: You mentioned acquisition and retention. We've been focusing more on the benefits to employees, but talk about some of the other benefits to businesses if they decide to continue remote work as the years pass.
0: So I think that we're going to see a lot more of employee happiness, which is a benefit to the employer because the happier your employees are, the more likely they are to stick with you. That retention and turnover cost is huge. There, I've seen some figures where it can be at least half of an employee's annual salary up to several times their out annual salary, depending on the, the position and the type of skills that are involved to actually find somebody new with that skill set and then train them up. So, I mean, in the government, we have security clearances. It is really expensive to get somebody in a security clearance. When I first came on with the Air Force, I spent over six months in training. So they had to pay me that whole time. They had to pay the trainers and all the equipment that goes into that. And they didn't really get anything back out of me until I was done with that training. So paying somebody for six months and investing all that money in their training and getting them up to speed with the institutional knowledge in a company and the how-to, that can be really expensive. So that is a huge benefit for companies because they can retain that knowledge and that talent. and I think, institutional knowledge and history on why a company has done some of the things they've done Um, in program management where I work right now. Institutional program knowledge is, is a big thing and having that continuity and people know where to go to find different things or why decisions have been made in the past. That knowledge is really hard to replace and to train up with new people. And often it can take years of experience to gain that type of insight. So I think maintaining that And helping retain employees will really help companies going forward, being able to reduce some of the turnover and some of the lost time and efforts that happen when you're trying to keep continuously train up new people.
1: Well, the book is Leading Remote Teams, Embrace the Future of Remote Work Culture. Our conversation really has driven home the point that remote work is here to stay. Although it may shift depending on what's going on in our world, what's happening with the pandemic, what these last few years have shown is that we can work remotely, get a lot accomplished, and maybe have happier employers and employees alike this is the new world. And while we may go back to working in person again, it probably will never be exactly the same. Alexis this has been a great conversation. Can you tell everybody where we can find you and where we can buy the book if we're interested in taking a look at it?
0: So the book is on Amazon.com. If you search leading remote teams, it'll probably be one of the first options that come up. And my name is Alexis Gerst Is the author of the book. I also have a website, www.alexisgerst, A-L-E-X-I-S-G-E-R-S-T.com. That's kind of my home. And then I'm also very active on LinkedIn. So you can connect with me there as well.
1: This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Alexis Gerst. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the community section. I just wanted to remind you all that if you're enjoying these conversations we're having every Monday and Thursday, check out the Facebook group. That's com slash Facebook group. That is a place where we talk about the same types of topics that you hear on the podcast. So everything from personal finance to life, we cover it there. There's often these great conversations. I wanted to also mention today, especially it's a great place for you to come and give feedback on the episode. This is exactly what happened. Episode 213 has Fire Evolved with Jale Collins, Brad Barrett, and Jillian Johns Rood. I got a lot of feedback on this episode, especially in the Facebook group. To start with, Frank was mentioning in his comments this idea that did the fire movement start with Vicki Robbins in 1992, the book Your Money, Your Life. He wrote, You might wish to look further back in time to works such as the autobiography of Ben Franklin, Self-Reliance by Emerson and Thoreau's Walden, and even The Art of Money-Getting by P.T. Barnum. There is a cycle of popularity of these ideas that wax and wane throughout modern history. This is only the latest incarnation, but is fueled by the new invention of the internet. Round retiree responds, to be fair enough, while the origins of fire are eminently debatable, the gist of the episode is on the evolution of fire, and certainly it has evolved recently. Danielle says, such a great conversation. Thanks, Doc G. Gwen wrote, thanks for inspiring a post on the evolution of my fire journey over the last decade coming soon. Stay tuned. Claudia says, this is one of the best shows I've ever heard on this podcast, viewing financial independence through a different lens. What does it mean when it's no longer about the money? I loved everyone's thoughtful contributions. I agree with the commenters. This was a fun conversation to hear from some of the OGs, the original writers about FIRE and financial independence at least in our area in the 2010s and 20s. It really gets you philosophical about what is happening with the movement, the people in the movement and where we are going. The whole purpose of me starting this podcast was to move past the how and to get to the why. So you'll see a lot of blogs or podcasts about how to get to financial independence, how to save, how to invest, how to do a 401k or a Roth or a 529 or how to do a Roth conversion. I think all that stuff is really important But as we've gone further with this movement, we've really moved past those beginning questions and are searching for some of the deeper answers. Why do we do what we do? What are we going to do once we are financially independent? What does money really buy us? And it's interesting to note that a lot of people who've gone through this transition, when they became financially independent, they weren't suddenly happy. In fact, a lot of people become depressed when they realize all of a sudden they've met this goal, and yet they haven't come to terms with their meaning and purpose in life Ultimately, it's part of the evolution. It's part of the evolution of the movement as well as part of the evolution of us as individuals. We evolve away from the nuts and bolts of our finances and move on to the deeper questions. Certainly, that is my goal here on Earn and Invest, and it also is the goal on the Facebook group. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook we want to have these deeper conversations. We want to get down to the why of what you do, what you do, and how can that be instructive to your community members? How can we use your experience, our experience, the experience of people like Jale Collins and Brad Barrett and Jillian Johnsrud, how can we use all of our collective experiences to live a better life? to learn, to build on the knowledge we have, to have stable finances, but also lives of meaning and purpose. It was a really fun episode. If you haven't checked it out, episode 213, Has Fire Evolved? with Jail Collins, Jillian Johnsrude, and Brad Barrett. It was a joy to make, and I'm glad that you all really liked listening to it. See you next time. Thank you. Cool. Was there anything you felt like we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about?
0: Um, So the only thing that I was just thinking about as we wrapped it up is kind of the the, how it plays into the financial independence aspect of it and just like that flexibility and, and lifestyle design. Um, i think the book captures that a little bit i think it's maybe nuanced enough that if somebody was not necessarily part of the financial independence community just kind of like oh okay that would be an option but i think members of the fi community are really gonna zero in on that as like okay maybe i can live the lifestyle i want to live and start making some of the changes and get that flexibility before being fully fi and that's kind of why this is so important to me and encouraging the federal government because i love my job and i love what i do but i would love to be able to travel the world while i do it from a computer but the rules and the policies and the labor unions and the organization like that are so restricted right now that it's really hard to hard for them to just allow people to do that so Part of this passion project is getting this book out there and encouraging a lot of different people to see it and to kind of push this culture change and help the government, which is known for its (laughs) um, resistance to change or being really slow to adapt to the times, help them adopt this a little bit quicker.
1: It's really interesting because, in some senses, it's not much of it's. It's not just a financial independence issue, right? Because what you're talking about is the freedom to work in various places and on a schedule and in a location that works better for you, and that transcends whether you're interested in financial independence or not. I think that's everyone, right? We all kind of, I mean, we talk in financial dependence, we talk a lot about geo arbitrage and right. Being able to go live somewhere cheaper and then still get paid at your previous salary. But I think it, it's appealing to everybody, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways too, like you have a lot more job options, right? Cause you can get a job anywhere. Like mm-hmm. you can live where you want to live and you cannot waste your time doing things like commute, so it's interesting i, I see yeah. your connection with financial independence, but I would almost challenge you to say that um, I think that for the same reasons it appeals to financial independence people it appeals appeals to everyone because a lot of financial if you were if you were one of the original fire people, right, you wanted to retire early and not work at all <laughs> so That's true. yeah so you didn't you didn't want to be doing remote work, you wanted to be doing no work now I think the more modern day financial independence people actually, when you talk to them, a lot of them say, well, I want to save up enough money and have a high enough net worth that my money makes money for me. On the other hand, I'm definitely not opposed to working if I can find a way to work that I enjoy. And maybe that's really what you're pointing to.
0: Yeah. I think with the remote work aspect and being able to kind of take back, control of your time and tie your working output to output and performance rather than hours spent and that's kind of the disconnection also that I'm hoping to shift in the culture because it's really hard to monitor people's hours when they're working from home really you just see what their outputs are so and it's made me question like well if I can get twice as much done and half as much time and I still can go pursue the other interests that I want to pursue I'm big into running so if I can go on a trail run for half a day and still be able to get my work done it's kind of question like the actual motivations behind pursuing pi- financial independence. Cause I'm like, well, I'm an active person. I like to contribute. I like to, to do useful things. And I think I'll always want to be contributing or adding value to the marketplace and in, in some fashion or another, whether it be, you know, consulting or leading a team or something else, I'm not sure what it'll end up looking like, but if I, still, I'm going to do that, then why do I need to be financially independent? But I think it's kind of that scale where it gives you a lot more options, I think, and it gives you more strength to push back if you have a good financial foundation behind you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'd almost push the idea of financial independence. I think you are financially independent, regardless of how much money you have, if you found a job that you really love doing and can do it in a way you like doing it. And it's enough to support your your economic needs. Then in a sense, you kind of are financially independent because you know, a lot of people talk about financial independence, then I'm going to leave my job to go then do something else I want to do. But that's <laughs> something else. If it happens to be the work you do already, you know, the goal is kind of fulfilled.
0: Well, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to chat with me about this and let me come on the podcast. So thank yeah.
1: you. It was a lot of fun. I look forward right. to hearing the final product. <laughs> want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money?